Well, good morning again. Thank you so much for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into this space. Uh, thanks for gathering here on this Easter morning. He is risen. We'll do that one more time. He is risen. Such good news to be able to celebrate. Thank you again, yes, for bringing the church here. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, wherever you happen to be gathered. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, we've never met. My name is Jamie. It is my joy and my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's my joy to be able to celebrate the empty tomb on this Resurrection Sunday. And it's my joy to be able to open up God's word with you all this morning where we get to ponder, we get to consider, we get to behold the event that literally changed everything. Now, I don't know if it's because our family might be in a bit more of a reminiscing sort of mode as our oldest daughter is getting ready to graduate and we'll go off to college uh, here in a, in a few months. Um, but there's been you know stories that have been told and reminiscing. And so uh, her and my wife were reminiscing, more my wife reminiscing because the age that my daughter Sydney was at, she wouldn't have been old enough to remember this, but it was an Easter story. It was literally the Monday after Easter, and I believe my wife was pregnant with her second daughter, McKinley, all right, um, and Sydney and my wife Heather ventured out to the grocery store the Monday after Easter, and she's there in the shopping cart and making her way through Publix, and then they go through the checkout line, and the gentleman is there helping to bag up the groceries and then helping to push the cart out toward the car with you know my pregnant wife and um, and uh, pushing my my two and a half year old I believe at, at the time in the cart and as they were as the groceries were being unloaded into the trunk of the car uh, the two and a half year old Sydney looked at the man from Publix the Publix employee and said these words guess what all right which if you're him you're like I have no idea what's coming next right um, but this two and a half year old asked guess what and he said I. I don't know, what? And she said, the tomb is empty, all right? Um, and just like this bold declaration, the Monday after Easter, and the reality of that is it's true. That is what we get to celebrate, not just on this day, but every day. The tomb is empty. And with that sort of childlike wonder, enthusiasm, and just this no fear of telling anybody that will listen, right? Guess what? The tomb is empty. We get to declare that. It's not just me declaring that this morning. We're declaring it to one another as we sing songs, as we pray, as we open up God's word. It's this collective thing that's happening here in the moment of just like declaring to anyone that will listen. Guess what? Guess what, my friends? The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. He is alive and it changes everything. And so it's my hope and prayer for all of us this morning that we might even if you're like super familiar with the story that I'm about to read, or this is completely new to you, that there might be this awe, this wonder in a childlike way that's like, guess what? Oh my goodness, the tomb is empty. So I want to invite you. You don't need to hear my thoughts or opinions of this, right? We need to hear from God's word. And so we're going to look at the account of the resurrection in the book of Matthew. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there to Matthew chapter 28. It's the last chapter. There are Bibles in the pews. Uh, you can follow along there. You can also, if you get your phone out, go to cplife.church. And there you'll see an image that says sermon notes, and you can click that, and you'll be able to follow along. The text will be there, as well as anything I put up on the slides this morning. There's space for you to take notes. So cplife.church for that. But this is God's word, Matthew chapter 28. Here's Matthew's account of Easter Sunday. Begins this way. 
Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone, and then sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, and they became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. So come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, but I also love this line, and with great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And as they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. In his book, Surprised by Hope, and there's that word hope that is so key for us this morning, the author N.T. Wright speaks of Easter and contrasts it in many ways with some of the other holidays that we celebrate in the church calendar. Um, and I think if we're honest, we would say, man, like Christmas gets top billing, right? I mean, it's like, I don't know, there's probably Christmas you know, stuff for sale already at this time of the year, right? I mean, it's like it can start so early and we'll give a lot of time to that. Or even as we enter into Lent, right? Like multiple weeks and sort of this season of, of deprivation, or I'm giving something up for Lent. And then we come to Easter, and it literally is the day that changes everything, and yet we can just sort of come at it and like, okay, yeah, that's great, and I went to church, and then just kind of forget. But it is this thing, like this should be the celebration. Here are his words. He says this, if Lent is a time to give things up, Easter ought to be a time to take things up. Champagne for breakfast again. Well, of course, Christian holiness was never meant to be merely negative. Of course, you have to weed the garden from time to time. Sometimes the ground ivy may need serious digging before you can get it out. Well, that's Lent for you. But you don't want simply to turn the garden back into a neat bed of blank earth. Easter is the time to sow new seeds and to plant out a few cuttings. He continues, he says, if Calvary means putting to death things in your life that need killing off, if you are to flourish as a Christian, and as a truly human being, then Easter, my friend, should mean planting and watering and training up things in your life, personal and corporate, that ought to be blossoming, filling the garden with color and perfume, and in due course, bearing fruit. Like, this is what 
Easter Sunday brings. It's this new life. And so this morning, there is a word that as I read through Matthew 28, if you're paying attention to patterns, to the ways that the authors of the scripture, under the inspiration and guidance of God's spirit, oftentimes we'll repeat certain words or phrases. And there's a word that showed up in this chapter. It's a word that showed up a week ago Sunday as we looked at the start of Holy Week. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Behold, your king comes riding on this donkey, entering in the most humble of ways, of circumstances. And in Matthew 28, again, there's this word. Behold. Behold. Behold the risen Christ. Behold the impact that this can have on your life and my life. May we this morning behold and see that it actually changes everything, that it brings us hope, it brings meaning, it brings purpose to this life. Like As I read through this, it's key to just even pay attention to the opening words where it says, and after the Sabbath. Now, think about this for a moment. Like It's easy to show up, I think, on Easter Sunday, right? Um, and all of us, myself included, might be like, do I own anything pastel? Cool, I'll grab that, all right? Um, and we'll do that, and we can come in. Man, it is, there's a joy. I mean, I'll tell you what, like, there is an energy about Easter morning just gathered as the church that is unlike anything, and I love it. But let's not forget, at the start of chapter 28, after the Sabbath, these women who would have witnessed Jesus dying, and then it's darkness, all their dreams seemingly having been, been shattered, and then this day where they can't do anything. Like, do you know when there's like, when you're, when you're grieving, right, and you just want to occupy yourself with something, and then to have these strict Sabbath rules that would say, you can't go for a walk, you can't go do this, you can't go to the tomb, to just be sitting there in it, in the pain, in the brokenness. There's no pastel colors. I mean, they're grieving. And yet what is so key, even the order of this, that it starts the story with Sabbath, with rest, and the story of the scriptures is always an invitation. Rest in the finished work of God, and then resurrection comes. We don't go achieve, we don't do, we don't make it happen. It starts with rest, and it leads to new life and to, new, you know, to this resurrection. And then it tells us, and this is not just a random detail here, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Where else, my friends, have we heard about light breaking through in the darkness and it being the first day of the week? This is Genesis 1 language. This is creation language. And this is a way that Matthew, under God's inspiration, is communicating. There is a whole new world that is bursting forth right in the midst of this broken world. Not just someday off in the future, though that is true, but right here, right now, new life breaking forth. And so with this, what I want to do this morning is just look at two things. I want us to behold the truth that is spoken of here, this resurrection account. And then I want to talk for a moment. If you and I would behold the truth, embrace the truth, surrender tr to the truth, what is the benefit, the blessing that we get? What comes our way by believing this, by beholding this truth? And so for just a few minutes, there's more than we could, you know, more things that we certainly talk about. But I want to ask this question as it pertains to belief and to beholding, like, who has the burden of proof? Because not everybody believes this. Not everybody is celebrating the resurrection. You might be here this morning and like, I don't know, I, like, this seemed like a fun thing to do. I heard there was donuts. I'm not sure, right? But like, you're here, but you may not actually believe it. I'm so glad that you're here. It's worth asking, like, who has the burden of proof? 
Is it the Christian, is it the church to prove like, hey, to give some evidence for why we believe what we believe? Yeah, I actually do think that's true. I think that's part of it. But I also think there's a burden of proof on the one that is the skeptic, on the one who's got the doubts and the questions. How do you explain this 2,000 year movement of this church? As we look at some of these things, how do you explain what is happening here? Like I think we need to enter into this honestly. And what do we do with our, with our doubts? Now, maybe you're here this morning, you're like, never had a doubt in my life. I'm like, cool, how's lying working out for you? Anyway, um, like, the reality, I think if we're honest, is like, we all have doubt, and that's a good thing. I mean, did you notice? We'll get to it more in a minute, but toward the end, it says, some worshiped and believed and some doubted. Like, it's right there in the Bible. Like, it's not advocating for it, certainly, like, that's the place you want to end up in, but it's honest. There's a humanity about this whole thing. And so I think it's so important for us to wrestle through these things because if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And if it didn't happen, as the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, friends, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Give up on this nonsense. What you're doing here right now, this is the silliest thing in the world. So how can we have some confidence? What does it look like to engage our doubts, not just for our own benefits that we might be strengthened in this resolve of belief, but also here's the reality. Every single one of you has a friend, family member, a coworker, somebody you're on a sports team with, whatever, a neighbor that has doubts and questions. And the more you and I can honestly engage in those, the more we will be what this passage talks about at the end, faithful disciples who make disciples. We get to go and tell this good news. And so I want to look for a moment at some of these things and talk about what seemingly feels impossible. So let's look at a few of them. So at first level, just resurrection in general. Is this possible or impossible, right? Like, I think we got to start there for a moment. Like, because none of this matters if we don't know the answer to this question. And so at one level, I think it is helpful to just stop and ask, okay, if there is a God, if you're somebody that believes in God, you may not fully follow Jesus, but if you're just like, hey, I believe there's some sort of higher power, there's a God, all right, and there's a God that made this world a God that created life, isn't it possible that that same God could produce resurrection life? Like I think just thinking logically, we have to grant that. So if there's a God who made everything, could he not possibly then do this as well? Is it impossible or is it in the realm of a possibility? I think logic would dictate that it's in the realm of possibility. But if you're in the other end of kind of the spectrum, you're like, well, I don't actually believe in a God. I think everything is random. It happens by chance. Well, then to stop and say, okay, fair enough, let's go along those lines for a moment. If everything is random by chance, so you and me and this world and everything we, the space that we inhabit, all of it was by chance, random, isn't it possible that that randomly by chance a resurrection could occur? Like, if we're playing along those lines, like, we have to just acknowledge, okay, it's a big thing to consider, but I believe logic would even dictate it's not an impossibility. Like it actually is possible. So the resurrection, impossible. I think as we think this through, regardless of where you land, if you believe in God or not, you have to acknowledge that it is actually possible. And then what about the empty tomb as we get very specific, not just resurrection in general, but the empty tomb of Jesus. Is it impossible or is it possible? How should we think through these matters? And so as you noticed, as I read through this account, starting in verse 11 through 15, Matthew writes this from a vantage point that is like, hey, the tomb was empty, and therefore, 
those that were opposed to Jesus and his ways. So you have the guards, right, that have been trained. Apparently they fall asleep, all right, which even that part for a moment seems a little crazy. I mean, these are like the best of the best. They wouldn't have put like, the, you know, the, this guy is first week on the job. I mean, they're going to have, this is an important thing, all right? I don't think he put like a Navy SEAL on this, like, oh, I'm sorry, I just fell, I fell asleep. Really? So when the gigantic stone was moved and the earthquake and the angel, like, didn't wake up at all? I'm a deep sleeper, right? Like, it just seems a little insane, unless it actually took place that way, right? And so you get this account. Now, they are going and they're making up this account. Why? Well, because the tomb was empty and there had to be some explanation. So the given is that the tomb is empty. And so I think that's where we have to start. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, what if Matthew just wrote that in there? What if he did that? I think it's worth considering, certainly. But if you're trying to make up this story, so in hopes that people might believe it, do you really think Matthew would write a you know, somewhat credible, plausible explanation for this to just give like ammo to the other side? That doesn't seem likely. So again, I just think these are worth considering. It's not the be-all, end-all it's not like, wow, this pastor said that. Where do I sign up for Team Jesus? Like, I get that it might take time to process through these things, but I think these things have to be considered. But as we keep going, I think there's something else. What about the witnesses to this? Do they speak of it being possible or impossible? Well, at one level, one of the things that we see throughout the accounts are people referenced Peter and James and John and the other disciples. If you go read 1 Corinthians 15, which I put before, if you just want like just this beautiful exposition of the significance of the resurrection written by the Apostle Paul, go read that today. And in that account, Paul says something about him appearing to Peter and then eventually appearing to Paul. And he also says this, which is fascinating. Jesus appeared also to some 500 people, most of whom are still alive. So perhaps you've been taught something about the Bible that said, well, you know, all of this was written hundreds of years after the fact. So there was plenty of time for legends to develop. That is actually not historically accurate. These are all written not within centuries of it actually happening, but within decades. And so when Paul says, hey, there's some 500 witnesses, do you know what it is? It's an invitation. Go find the people that Jesus appeared to. Go have a conversation with Peter or with John. Paul's like, come have a conversation with me. Or there's 500-some people you can go and talk to. These witnesses prove that it's not impossible, but it's possible that it actually did take place. But I think it's even further than that. I think it's even more profound than that. And if you've been around Crosspoint, you've heard me reference this before, but I think it's something helpful we got to keep coming back to. In every account of the resurrection, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Who are the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and who has the first encounter with the risen Christ, with Jesus? Is it the now 11 disciples? It's the women. It's the women in every single account, which you might be thinking is not that big of a deal. But let me put before you, if you were trying to make this story up, if you were trying to push forward a narrative, all right, if you had like your own fake news you were seeming to do back a couple thousand years ago, right, there is no way in the world you would ever write it and construct the story that two women showed up as the first eyewitnesses. Because in that time and in that place, women were thought so poorly of that their testimony, them bearing witness to something, was not admissible in a court of law. 
And so if you're trying to showcase, all right, this actually happened, and you're, or you're trying to build some sort of like false story, all right, there is no way that you would have women show up as the first eyewitnesses, unless, of course, my friends, that's actually how it happened. And they're simply bearing witness. And they're also smart enough to know if they put it down like, yeah, Peter and John, they were the ones that were there first. You got some Marys that would be like, <clears throat> excuse me, we were there first because they would have their story to tell. It played out this way. And it's also part of God's grace of just turning everything upside down to allow these women who were thought of so poorly denigrated in society to be the first eyewitnesses. It's another way of Jesus saying, my grace is for all people. I'm tearing down all these walls. And he invites them in, the witnesses. But one last thing before you. There's more that we could talk about. But let's talk about change, transformation. Does it speak to the possibility of the resurrection? Or does it lean us toward a direction? No, this is impossible. Well, if you were to read the account prior to the resurrection, about the disciples in particular, right? What would you know? That these guys said, I'm with you, Jesus, to the bitter end, right? We're willing to die for you. And then the moment, like a young girl happens to ask Peter, hey, are you one of his followers? Like, nope, I don't know him, not with him, not me, right? They deny Jesus, they desert Jesus, right? Like, they, all of these things, they are cowards. I mean, their true character is revealed. When the going gets tough, suddenly they are exposed. They are not these committed followers. They are a bunch of misfits that keep messing up over and over and over again. So one of the things, as far as burden of proof, then, how do you explain the radical transformation? Like, what in the world would cause these guys who were cowards, who deserted Jesus, abandoned Jesus, right, denied even knowing Jesus, all of that, what would cause each and every one of them to ultimately give their life? Do you really think they would have done that to carry on a story of a supposed resurrection that never happened? What would empower them? What would embolden them? What would send them out? The only thing that makes sense to me is that the tomb was empty, that Jesus had risen, and that that had caused them to go from these fearful men to fearlessly faithful. It's only the empty tomb. It's only meeting the risen Christ that would do that. It's only by an experience of God's grace. How do you explain this group of misfits that literally set up and started a movement that has carried on to this day that has changed everything? Even those that are, would consider themselves agnostic or atheistic scholars would have to say, you have to reckon with the fact if there's no church, there's no Western civilization as we know it. Like, how could it have this sort of impact? And so, friends, for just a few minutes here, let me talk then, if this is beholding this truth, what kind of blessing flows our way? What are the benefits of this truth? So look with me back at verses 16 to 20. It says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's our word again. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A couple things here. 
the glorious good news of the empty tomb of Easter Sunday, of Resurrection Sunday, first and foremost, as it reminds us, it is all grace. I just spoke of this as we consider the transformation of these disciples. It's all grace when you consider the story of Mary Magdalene and how Jesus extended mercy and grace to her. It's all grace that these disciples show up and they see Jesus. It tells us that many worship, but also some doubted. And I love, again, that humanity that's exhibited there. This is not because they got it all figured out. They didn't get a plan together. They Listen, at the end of the day, they had run off and Jesus is like, hey, go tell them where to meet. I'm coming after them. This is always how it works. God pursues us. If you're like, I don't know if God's pursued me. You're here this morning. This is part of God's sovereign work in your life and in my life that we might be gathered here together in this moment to hear about the resurrection of Christ. It is all grace. I quoted from a man named Frederick Buechner last week at Palm Sunday. I have another quote that I think is really helpful in this. And he's wrestling with, he's talking about doubt. And these men, even again, right? I think another reason to believe this is if you're trying to make it up, it doesn't look like you're putting your best foot forward to be like, yeah, well, some doubted. You know? I mean, it's like, why would you even include that? Unless that's just how it actually played out. And so Beekner says this. He's talking about as we wake up each day, we should be reminded that even being able to believe, friends, it is such a gift. And the one thing the gospel should do is drive out our arrogance and our self-righteousness. Jesus pursued me. He came after me. I was dead in my sin and trespasses. He breathed new life into me. He gave me a new heart. And even the faith that I have, it's a gift from him. There is no boasting in anything except for what Christ has done. And so to believe and then to wrestle with doubts, like all of it just reminds us of God's grace. Beekner says it this way. He says, can I believe it all again today? Just like waking up in the morning, like, can I believe it all again today? He says, at least five times out of 10, the answer should be no, all right? Because the no is as important as the yes, and maybe more so. The no is what proves you're human in case you should ever doubt it. And then if some morning the answer happens to be really yes, it should be a yes, and I love this, that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. Friends, the invitation to behold. The question, guess what? The fact that you can say, he is risen, he is risen indeed, and to actually believe that, Like everything in us wants to go the opposite direction in God and his grace, even amidst the doubts, it's all his grace that would even allow you to do that. And so to make that confession amidst tears, and then I love this, it's a picture of tears and laughter happening simultaneously, like that should be our posture. I can't believe it. I can't believe that God has given me faith. I can't believe that God has brought me into this story of new creation. And from there, it's not only all grace, there's all authority. It says this, that Jesus reminds them, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's the encouragement with this. One of the benefits, the blessing of the empty tomb is that Jesus has ascended. He's at the place of authority, at the right hand of the Father. One day he's coming back. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Friends, he's coming back on a white horse. He is victorious. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He has all authority. There's nothing that can stand in his way. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. Right? So that's the story that we're part of. And here's what it means. 
It means that Jesus, no matter what is happening, the words of Romans 8.28 are true. That God is working together everything for his purposes to those that he's called, to those that love him, to those that trust in him. Like that's the story that we've been invited into. A resurrection story. It says Paul Miller in his book, The J-Curve, talks about this downward descent of Jesus that leads to what? That curve, it leads to resurrection. Jesus went into the tomb. It looked like Satan had won. It looked like Satan was gonna have this victory. But no, the cross becomes our symbol of victory because of the empty tomb. And now there's this resurrection life. That is your story. After the service today, as a continuation of the service, we're celebrating baptisms. It's this picture of being buried with Christ and then raised to walk in a newness of life. It means this, that Jesus has all authority and so even the worst thing that could happen to you, even the worst thing, which is death, right? Never part of God's original plan. Death is now something, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we can mock. Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, I know we feel that in this moment. It's not to minimize that, but ultimately, the big picture story that we're part of, if Jesus has all authority, The benefits that flow your way is that we can have this confidence that when your body and my body gets put into the ground, it is being put there like seeds being planted. And one day when Jesus comes back, you're not going to rise in some sort of like disembodied soul. It's a new creation. It's new bodies. It's new life bursting forth out of the ground. So that's the picture. That's the picture we should have the next time you drive past a cemetery. And for anyone that's in Christ, they've been seeds that have been put into the ground. That's why the poet George Herbert, Herbert said it this way, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Think about that. It used to look like, oh man, fear death, fear the executioner. And now it's like, thank you, my friend. You put me into the ground. You're a, it's a gardener. This is what takes place because of the empty tomb. Jesus has all authority. And then he says, you're all called. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not baptized into your worldview or your thoughts. You're baptized into Christ. It's all God's grace. And yes, this has an evangelism component. This wasn't just for the original 11. This is for you and me, anyone that's in Christ. But to go and make disciples, yes, to see people converted, but it's not just Cool, you prayed a prayer, let's sit back, kick back, and wait till Jesus returns. There's also now an invitation. He's your Lord. There's nothing that he can't ask of you. What does it look like to live all of your life with a glad, like, surrender to Jesus and your finances, your relationships, your work, your recreation, all of it? Everything matters. Jesus wasn't resurrected just as a disembodied soul, flesh and blood. That means all of creation matters. And so everything in your life is loaded with significance. Tim Keller in the book, The Reason for God, says it this way. Each year at Easter, I get to preach on the resurrection. In my, on the resurrection. And in my sermon, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. And most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up. He continues, they find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation 
to make the world a better place? Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end, nothing we do will make any difference? But if the resurrection's true, however, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. To go and make disciples is to invite people into a life of knowing Jesus, having their sins forgiven, to live with Jesus as their Lord so that every aspect of their life is transformed and all of the work we're doing right here, right now, gets to be glad participation in the new creation. What you do matters. This earth matters. The world matters. Your body matters. Like, all of it. And so this is one of the benefits. Lastly, did you notice how this ends, right? There's our word, behold, again. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I read that, and this isn't untrue, but I I do read this very individualistically. Yep, Jesus is with me, and he's with the people that I care about. He's going to go with them. He'll be with them forever. He'll be with me, and that is true. But the translation here doesn't quite get across. The truth of the matter is there's a plural to it. There's a plurality to this. Now, I grew up in a world where we didn't say words like this, but some of you from the South, you know, there's a word that you can use, right? What this should be translated is, I'm with y'all always, all right? That's actually more correct, what it's getting at. What it's speaking of is this, the way you and I experience the promise and the presence of Jesus is through the people of God. He is with us, yes, through the Holy Spirit, but he's also with us in this plural, like, y'all, I'm with you, he's saying. And when you gather, I am with you. This morning, hear this. As you sang songs, as you declared he is risen, that's not just for you to declare. We experience the promise and presence of God through the people of God. I need to hear you sing. Weirdly, you need to hear me sing, not because I can sing in tune or it's beautiful, but we need to declare together, he is risen, the tomb is empty, this changes everything. When I fail to believe this, I need to be stirred up, my affection stirred for Jesus. How? By just isolating? No, by pressing in further into the people of God. If you're somebody and you're not connected to a church, we would love for you to be connected here, but it's not here, somewhere. You're not called to be an isolated Christian. If you're like, I don't experience the presence of God, are you around the people of God? Yeah, but they annoy me and they're mad. Yeah, welcome to the club, man, right? Like... (laughs) Again, it's all grace. We need one another. There's a pastor I have deep respect for. He retired recently. He planted a church up in Nashville, Tennessee called Emmanuel. And his name is Ray Ortland. And part of the culture of that church, one of the things that, that became what they called their Emmanuel mantra, right, was this short declaration in three points, a very short sermon, all right, um, three things that just kind of became part of the culture there, apparently. Here's the three things. This is this sort of corporate confession together. That's people have got. How do we experience the presence of God? It's remembering and reminding one another, God is with us, y'all, like together. But what do we need to confess? What do we need to declare, all right? And so point one of this very short sermon is this. You don't have to declare this, he would say, all right? He's like, I'm going to declare it. I'm a complete idiot. Point one. Some of you are like, amen, all right? So um, I'm a complete, this means 
I'm not impressive. There's nothing that I've done that's earned the affection of Jesus. He didn't look out, you know, across eternity and be like, dude, Jamie, man, that guy, he's, yeah, I need him. No, there's nothing. I'm dead in my sin and my rebellion, my treason against the king. I am an idiot. Point two, my future though is incredibly bright because the finished work of Jesus, because the resurrection is true, the tomb is empty. My story, because of the authority of Jesus, is part of this renewal and this redemption of all things, including my body and my mind, my soul, every aspect of me. My future is incredibly bright. So yes, point one, I'm an idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And point three, anybody can get in on this. Anybody. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you do in the future. It's as simple as saying, I'm an idiot that stands in the need of God's grace. And because of the work of Jesus, my future is incredibly bright. And because there's nothing new under the sun, all right, and because we're going to like redemptively steal something here, all right, Emmanuel mantra, sure, let's call it the Crosspoint Confession. That's what we're going with, right? All right. And I'm not telling you you have to do this. But I want to say this this morning. I need to confess this to you all. If you want to join me, let's do it. So here we go. Point one, I am a complete idiot. Point two, my future is incredibly bright. Point three, anybody can get in on this. Friends, when Jesus invites you to go and make disciples, he's not asking you to go out there and be impressive. You're not. Neither am I. Jesus is impressive. He's the one that should stir us up and be like, guess what? The tomb is empty. Guess what? Jesus loves me. Guess what? I'm in him. We're invited to help people come to a realization we're all in need of grace. We're all idiots. We're all beggars. We're all mess-ups. We're all misfits. But because of the work of Christ, our future is incredibly bright. And you then, friends, get to be used by God to remind people anybody can get in on this. If you're in on it, and I'm in on it, anybody can get in on it. We are not impressive. Jesus is impressive. But he's given us an impressive, like beyond comprehension future. And so our final question then, will you believe the truth? Maybe for the first time, but also there's this call, right? Take up your cross and follow daily after Jesus it means there's going to be times where I don't believe it. I'm going to, I need your help to remind me. Will I believe the truth? Will I believe the lies that say I'm amazing and I should just embrace my truth and all that? Or will I embrace the truth of who Jesus is and that I'm somebody that's in desperate need of his grace? Will I believe that the tomb is empty? Will I experience the life that he has for me? And so friends, one of the things, is just as an encouragement, we're going to hear a story this morning we're a partner here at Crosspoint. So you can direct your attention to the screen here in a moment. And we share this because we want to celebrate God is at work. God makes dead people alive. God invites us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And I'm so thankful for my friend Justin who's willing to share his story. So let's watch uh, this now and we'll, we'll conclude our, our time and continue in worship but be encouraged in this story. My faith story, my faith journey uh, has been a, a long one, to say the least. 
Um, I was actually born into a non-practicing Catholic family. Around the time that I was about 10 or 11, I think, my timeline might be a little off there, but my mom actually uh, started studying with Jehovah's Witnesses and she would bring my brother and I, I have a brother two years younger, and we would go with her to the meetings and services. My mom had ministry and door-to-door uh, -door ministry, and we got taken along to all of those events and, and conferences and all of that stuff. And ultimately, at around, I wanna say 14 or 15, my mom approached both my brother and I and said, you guys are both old enough to make your own decision. Uh, you need to decide if this is what you believe and if you want to take the next steps. And both of us uh, were pretty clear that we didn't want to take that step um, and that we didn't really feel like we believed. We stopped going to church altogether. I just did a lot of reflection on my experience with the church and with Christianity and um, really just felt like my exposure had been to two very legalistic views on Christianity um, and it felt like a never-ending uh, laundry list of requirements that I had to meet if I was going to be worthy um, of, of God's love and of forgiveness. I, I would say for about a solid decade or so um, I found myself gravitating more towards Eastern philosophies that were focused on um, self-improvement and meditation and all, all kinds of things of that nature. All the while I did believe that there was a higher power, I just didn't necessarily believe that it was God and Jesus. Um, and the, the problem that I consistently found was while I was pursuing these different philosophies and, and trying to uh, quote-unquote achieve some form of enlightenment or higher spirituality, um, my life was kind of just a mess. It was uh, not bearing the fruit that I had thought that it would. It was kind of at the height of what I would consider my agnostic belief phase uh, that my brother actually came to visit. My brother was had become a born-again Christian and invited us to a church service at Cross Point. Stephanie and I came along with him um, begrudgingly and more so kind of just to make my brother happy. I didn't know it was God, but something really just struck me during that service. Um, I got really emotional and it actually ended up exploding into a big argument with my brother after the fact. Um, and so we butted heads quite a bit over his faith and my lack of faith. So we didn't really talk about faith much after that for a while, um, but something, something was changing inside me. After that service at Cross Point with my brother, there was probably about a 12 month period or so um, where it, I kind of went even further in the opposite direction and was like, I don't want to go back to church. And it took a while before I think um, those seeds that got planted in my heart started to kind of soften me up a little bit. Yeah, there was just a, a number of life circumstances that popped up um, that ultimately just kept pointing us back to my need for Jesus um, and my need for the community that we have here in the church. The 
things that we had been placing um, a high level of importance on and the way that we had been going about our own spiritual life was just not working. We remembered the experience that we'd had at Crosspoint previously um, and the fact that Crosspoint from day one just felt like a place where we could come and just be who we were and who God made us to be. It was just amazing to us how in the height of a pandemic when people were so isolated that we found a community. Um, I told Jamie one time when we were meeting about how Stephanie and I had a lot of friends, but we didn't necessarily have a uh, community. And there's a difference. You can be friends with a lot of people, but community is what God intended for us. Um, and that, to me, was a major sticking point in my life. I spent my entire life up till this point believing that I had to check off a certain number of boxes uh, to be deserving of God's love and to be deserving of community. It's just such a gift that we're given to know that God knew that we couldn't do it on our own. We would continue to fall short and we would continue to, to sin and, and make mistakes and to hurt people. And, and he, just, he just knew that if it were up to us that we'd never get it done. Um, and so the freedom that I've found in the gospel is just, I mean, there's no other way to put it, but that it's such a gift. Um, it's such a burden lifted off my shoulders to know that um, despite the fact that I am a broken, broken person, um, that God loves me, that he has a community for me that loves me. I'm just grateful. I don't know how else to say it. Justin, thank you for your willingness to share your story. Excited. He's one of the folks that will get to participate in baptism in just a, a few moments as well. And so church, just this reminder, right? It's very simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a gift that is. As we just heard, a burden that is lifted. And so we're gonna respond together this morning. We're gonna continue in our worship service. We're gonna worship through song. We'll continue in the baptisms and all that. But also just wanna take a time to encourage you to quiet and to ask the Lord, like, lead me. Where, where do you need to repent? Maybe for the first time to confess your sin and to receive the grace of God. And then let's rejoice together. We're gonna do that by singing, by participating in communion together. But let me pray for us, and then I'll, I'll give us some instruction. But just remember, friends, like this is what we get to invite people into. We get to go and to make disciples. We get to not be proud and arrogant. We understand our brokenness, but we understand our future is incredibly bright, and anybody can get in on this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace. God, would you use us for your glory, for our joy, to use broken, sinful people who by your grace, your mercy, the finished work of Jesus, 
have a future that is incredibly bright, it is secure, that there's an inheritance right now, Jesus, that you are guarding. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the tomb that is empty. We thank you for new life, God, that we even celebrate with baptisms today. God, it's a reminder that you are still at work. You're making dead people alive. Thank you that we get to be part of your resurrection story, your resurrection movement. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.